Alright, hello party people. This is the fourth time I've tried to start this and hopefully the episode that you will all hear. Something's wrong with my microphone and well, it's either me, my phone, or the microphone. I don't know whose fault it is. I don't know who to blame, but at the same time, I'm going to blame everything. <laughs> so I already filmed this episode one time, right? And as you know, I don't I don't edit my podcasts. I listen to them to make sure that they are coherent and not too rambly, and then I pick something for the title, and then I literally post it, bingo, bango, Bob's your uncle, there you go, right? And the last three times I've tried to do this, I don't know what the sound is unless this office is haunted, but to my knowledge, nobody's died in this house, so I, I don't know. Regardless, I'm going to listen to this back, and hopefully this is the version that you guys hear, okay? Cool. All right, that's going to have to be good enough. Listen back. Things are okay. We're going to roll with it. Fine. Hi, this is Cabernet and True Crime. My name's Jana. I am your host. This is the weekly time where we talk shit about serial killers, and that's all I've got. Because once again, I filmed this intro <laughs> legitimately four different times, and so I have no energy left in me to do it again. Today, dear friends, we're going to be talking about Charles Albright. And the first time I film this, I am happy because I'd like to keep him a little spooky for you guys. So I'm not even going to tell you what his stupid serial killer nickname is. Just Charles Albright. Cool. He was born in Amarillo, Texas on August 10th, 1933. Uh, For a reference that no one needs, Amarillo is in line with Albuquerque and New Mexico and Oklahoma City and Oklahoma. Wow. (laughs) In Oklahoma. It's all along the... uh, the same highway. I feel like I just, something happened to my brain while reading that sentence. And you know what? It's fine. We're going with it because I'm not restarting. Uh, this, he was born like in the middle of the hat of Texas, you know, like the thing that gives Oklahoma its little tea spout, right? I, geography is not my strong suit. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. So our boy Charlie was adopted when he was only three weeks old by a man and woman named Dell and Fred Albright. Uh, they went to the orphanage and brought him home. Dell was a school teacher and a strict, and as you'll see later, overbearing mother, which always goes really well for everybody. <laughs> there are multiple theories as to who Charles's real mother was, and this is a weird sidebar that I only bring up because it will be important later. Um, personally, I, I think it is what it is. If you, you know, whatever your life situation is, if you have to give a child up for adoption, whether whatever your circumstances are, whether you adopt, choose to adopt a child, that's all personal preference, and it is up to you to decide whether that's for you or not. So, I personally don't really give a hoot who Charles Charles's real mother was, but it is important to our story. So, during his childhood, Dell, his adopted mom, never kept it a secret that Charles was adopted, and I think I'm pretty medium on that. Um, I think if the situation fits and you think your child is, you know, strong enough to handle that information. I appreciate that. Um, Some people feel like it's better if their children don't know. That's also just a parenting choice. So she never kept it a secret that Charles was adopted. She told Charles that his birth mother was an exceptional law student, um, but she had only been 16 years old. So apparently the girl had secretly married another student and she became pregnant and the young girl's dad found out and he demanded that she annul her marriage and give the baby up for adoption or he would disown her from the family. And considering it was the 1930s, that is completely believable that that would be the case. Um, however, though, in an interview after the crimes, which there are crimes, Charles would comment on his opinion of sex workers saying, quote, 
Well, that's a touchy subject with me. My mother was a prostitute. His words, not mine. A number of people tried to verify the story, including an FBI agent as well as a private investigator who was working for Albright's defense attorney. They were unable to trace down Charles's biological dad, but his birth mother was a nurse who had lived and died in Wichita Falls. Sure, she wasn't the successful law student Dell said she was, but it's also impossible to prove whether or not she was a sex worker. Um, I would say most likely probably not, but who knows? Charles, uh, his close friends and family would even insist that Charles, at some point along this sordid tale, have been able to find his birth mom, going on to even say he'd visit her, visited her several times as an adult, bringing her gifts. Now, I, I don't know if that's true or not, or if he, he thought he met her or what. So that, that's just... But this sex worker fixation that Charles has will be important to our story in just a little bit. So, regardless of who Charles's mom really was, he seemed to have a really bright future. Dell was able to speed up his teaching, allowing him to skip two grades in elementary school. Each morning, Charles was made to practice the piano for at least 30 minutes before the bus arrived for school. So even from the very beginning, Charles was into extracurricular activities that were really, you know, ascending him forward. His intelligence, he was one of those cases where his intelligence was really honed and fostered and paid attention to. Like, he wasn't a neglected child, but sometimes, and as you'll see in a minute, you know, the exact opposite of neglecting and be having an overbearing parent may not be the answer, and it might cause just as much damage as being neglected. Well, that was kind of a harsh statement, but I, I think I think we're all on the same page. I hope you understood what I meant by that. So Dell so fiercely wanted her son to succeed, and she started kind of getting a little bananas with it. Like, you think with a caring mom who wants you to be successful, like, she was trying to keep him from getting into any kind of trouble or having any issues, but like I said, it seems like she almost caused the opposite to happen. Charles would rebel later in life, which I've known a lot of people who had really strict parents in high school, and they, they turn out <laughs> real rebellious as soon as college happens or as soon as they're not underneath their parents anymore. Once again, that's all about parenting and the type of child you have. I agree that a parent should foster the hobbies of their children, but you'll see when we get there, I personally think there are some hobbies that aren't necessarily appropriate for a child. Now, I will go against that and play devil's advocate and say that it was the 1930s, so the hobbies that, I mean, obviously, they weren't playing their Game Boy because <laughs> they didn't have it. So obviously, I think you had to be a little more creative with your hobbies and what you chose to do with your time, but still, some hobbies, I think, might mess your kid up regardless. So Dell, as I said, has some weird habits and I decided to put these all on a weird, a weird level, what I would call. So I rated them all. So the first thing that Dell liked to do and something she did for Charles was she kept goats in the backyard. That I don't think is that weird. She wanted her son to always have fresh goat milk determining that it was healthier for him to have. And like I said, the weird level, not bad, kind of slightly endearing and really cost effective when you consider it. So I, I support the goats in the backyard thing. Kind of weird, but once again, it was the 1930s and goats, people have goats now. So support. You, you Go ahead, Del. She changed his clothes multiple times a day for any sign of dirt. Weird level, uh, I said, you know, 
kind of OCD tendencies, maybe. But once again, like, not exactly harmful, especially if she's the one doing the laundry. Like, I, I would get annoyed if I had to do somebody else's laundry, that they were constantly changing their clothes, and it's like, dude, these aren't even dirty, but I had to wash them. But if I change my own clothes a bunch, and I wash them all, that's a different, like, I'm not as mad about it, if that makes sense. So, you know what, fine. If she, she just wanted Charles to be a dapper, well-dressed, clean little boy, and that, you know, we stand that. That's fine. This is kind of where the weirdness level goes downhill. So she was terrified that he would touch dog feces and get polio. So she took him to a hospital to show him polio patients locked in the iron lungs. Weird level. I originally say very weird. But at the same time, polio is like super scary and the vaccine wasn't invented until 1950. So it's weird. But I kind of understand like showing your child like, polio patients to scare them out of touching dog poop. I guess that's, like, a decent mentality, but kind of rude to the polio patients. Why not just keep your dog or your child, keep your dog, why don't you just keep your child away from the dog poop or, like, clean it up and make sure it's not anywhere near your child? I, that, I guess, you know what? There are multiple ways to solve a problem, and you know what? Fine. I will let it, I will let it be. Uh, before he was a year old, she locked him in a dark room as punishment for chewing on a tape measure. Weird level, very weird. Seems like a unfit punishment for the crime. And also, I don't know how long he was locked in there for. That's weird. And then when he wouldn't nap, she would tie him to the bed. Also very weird. Weird extreme forms of punishment for not that serious of a crime, if you ask me. And then lastly, if he wouldn't drink his milk, she would spank him, which that one I could almost understand because she's like, dude, I have these goats in the back for you. Drink your milk because I'm raising these stupid goats for you. <laughs> I mean, I got bit by a goat when I was a kid and I really don't appreciate them. So whatever. My feelings about goats are different, but whatever. So Del herself was oddly cheap. She never bought herself new clothes and wore clothes from Goodwill and like, okay, we get it. She's frugal. Good for her. You know, I mean, that was listed on a website as like bad. Like, I don't see that as being bad. Sometimes being too, too frugal can be weird because people get weird habits, but also wearing clothes from Goodwill, that's very, you know, economic and, uh, I forgot the word. Environmentally conscious, conscious, conscious. Yes. <laughs> Listen, guys, it's late and I'm tired and I'm doing my best. Okay. Bup, 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 bup. Okay. Yeah, sorry. She would try to cut costs at mealtimes, picking up old bones from the local butcher that he threw at a box for his dogs and used them in soup. That one I was a little weirded out about because, like, you don't know what, how old those bones were or how long they've been sitting there. And if they were for dogs, like, maybe they weren't, like, fresh or something. I don't know. It seems like a, you're worried about your dog. Your dog. Damn it. You're worried about your kid touching poop and getting polio, but you're not worried about the potential, you know, illnesses, upset stomach that you might be giving your kid. Whatever. Um, she and Fred were financially stable on their own, but um, so there really was no reason for them to be as frugal as they were. But I mean, it's possible they were still just stuck in depression era mentality and scared to let the money slip from their hands again. I don't know how hard this family was hit during the Depression. Um, if they were fine by, you know, the late 1930s, it assumes, I'm assuming they were okay. 
But that's neither here nor there. I know even my grandma still had some tendencies from being a Depression-era child where she would still, even to the day when she passed away, so like, say, 2008, she would still pick the um, foil off of gum wrappers and save them so she could recycle them. So, you know, the, the Great Depression was a very traumatic thing for a lot of people, and it affected a lot of families. So for them to be still kind of scarred from that is not necessarily surprising. As Charles started to get older, Dell would chaperone all of his dates, making sure he didn't do anything that she would deem scandalous. Where, where that bar was, I have no idea, probably on the floor. Charles went to the Methodist church each Sunday and went to bed promptly at 8 p.m. each night. Now, see, I wish I were in bed at 8 p.m. tonight, and I'm not. He hated her cheap food and cooking so much that he would often skip meals and hide his food or give it to the family dog. Dell fussed over him so regularly, he said, that he began to get headaches from it. Dell decided that the headaches were from bad eyesight and promptly made Charles wear glasses, even though he had 20-20 vision. So, <laughs> um, so now we're going to go back to the, the conversation we had a little earlier about hobbies that I don't think parents should foster. <laughs> Dell introduced Charles into the world of taxidermy. Interesting. When he was 11, she enrolled him in a mail-order course. He was excited to get to work on dead birds he'd found, (laughs) and arguably Dell was more excited to help him go through this journey of learning taxidermy. She showed him how to use all the tools, so the knife used to cut the skull, the little spoon he like that was used to scoop out the brains, the scalpel required to cut away the eyes from their sockets the forceps that pulled out the eyes. She even skinned the first bird for him, teaching him how not to cut too deep. And like I said, maybe I'm a little judgmental or close-minded on this, but I don't know if this is the kind of hobby like you want to get an 11-year-old boy into. But once again, it was the 30s. Well, no, it would have been the 40s. Still, uh, I, I don't know. My taxidermy I like, I, th- I like the artwork. I think it's really interesting, and I think it's a cool way to learn about animals. But I, I would never personally want to be a taxidermist. Um, I don't know if that's a hobby that I would have any interest in. But we're not going to get too stuck on that, right? It's it's kind of here or there. I just I think maybe 11 is a little young to get your kid into that. That's I guess that's my point that I'm trying to make. So Charles spent hours on his taxidermy courses, stuffing and mounting his birds, making them look, look as life-life wow, making them look as lifelike as possible, and then it would be ready, they'd be ready for the crowning touch, the eyes. He used to go to a taxidermy shop and stare at the boxes and boxes of fake eyes. He wanted to collect them, but the frugal Dell wouldn't let him. She said they were way too expensive and that she had a better option for his taxidermied birds. So at the end of the day, these taxidermied birds were finished, on display, in the china cabinet of the Albright family home. They were beautiful and lifelike, and they had no eyes. Instead, sewn into their heads were two dark buttons. At 13, Charles Albright was considered a petty thief and had been arrested for aggravated assault. It was theorized that Charlie was stealing things because his mother was so stingy or he wanted to rebel against her. A year later, when Charlie was 14, Dell and Fred purchased a piece of property in their neighborhood and gave it to Charlie. Charlie sold it to buy more lots, and the Dallas Times-Herald published a story about him under the headline, World's Youngest Real Estate Man Amassing Nest Egg for College. He graduated from high school at 15 
1948 and enrolled in North Texas State College in Denton, Texas, he wanted to become a medical doctor and a surgeon, which would be pretty on brand for his taxidermy childhood. He started the pre-med training program, but ultimately would never finish it. At the end of his freshman year, he was arrested for being a member of a student burglary ring that had broken into three stores and stolen hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise. Of course, Charles denied the whole thing and said his friends had asked him to keep some things in his dorm room for, for him, which is the oldest excuse in the book. Every parent knows that's not true. The next year, police caught him with petty cash, two handguns, and a rifle. He spent one year in jail, and Dell, <laughs> overprotective as always, attempted to go to the store owner and reimburse, reimburse them for what was taken. She tried to get the judge to let her act as Charles's lawyer, which, bad news, bad news bears, just let lawyers be lawyers. When criminals and the relatives of criminals try to get involved and, like, take on their own cases and be lawyers, nothing good comes from that, so just let it be. But when that didn't work, she even asked if she could take his place in prison. Once again, that is not how these things work. And honestly, at some point, some people need to learn a lesson. Like, if he keeps getting in trouble, you know, like, just do your time. And maybe you'll learn during your time in jail that maybe you shouldn't steal guns from stores. And then you don't have to worry about this anymore. In the end, Charlie spent his 18th birthday in prison, and during that time, Dell did everything she could to keep it on the DL that her son was now a convicted felon. After he was released, he attended the Arkansas State Teachers College and majored in pre-med. He was remarkably well-rounded, um, president of French Club, business manager of the yearbook, member of the school choir, halfback on the football team. When he signed up for a drawing course, the professor was so impressed with how handsome Charlie was that he became the class model. And I've seen a picture of Charlie. Don't know if I'd agree with her or him, whoever they were, them. I don't know if I'd agree with that statement because I don't think he was that attractive, but that's not my call. I was not his teacher. So Arkansas, Arkansas State Teacher College was Charlie's chance for a new start. As he told a probation officer, he was going to mend his ways. He began to date a lovely young English major named Betty Hester and made plans to marry her. He did truly brilliant work in science, although he hardly studied, and he made an A in his human anatomy course. During the time, Charlie played a really awful prank on one of his friends, and my original description is, like, really long and drawn out, but basically what what Charlie did, and I, it's just so, this is just so weird. So he, his friend had a girlfriend, and Charlie apparently was really, really fascinated with this girl's eye shape. She had really unique, apparent apparently almond-shaped eyeballs, right? Well, eye socket. Her eyes were special. And so his friend had all these pictures of her, but then they broke up. And a couple months later, the friend got a new girlfriend, right? And he was like, oh, take a picture of yourself and, like, give me the picture so I can look at you. And then one night, he was laying in bed looking at his pictures, and, he like, it didn't look right. The pictures didn't look right. And it's because Charlie had gone through the trash, and picked out every picture of that ex-girlfriend, cut out her eyeballs, and then put them everywhere. So, like, the eyeballs were on the ceiling, were on this new girl's face, on the bathroom stall. So, everywhere he looked, his friend would have to see his ex-girlfriend's eyes. Very, very weird. And I don't know if I'd call that a prank. That sounds a little bit more like harassment, but neither here nor there. He never got in trouble for that. But at some point, Charles did get found with that was English, 
Charles got found with more stolen goods, and he wasn't prosecuted, but he was expelled from the school. So Charlie did the most logical thing he could think of. He lied and falsified documents and forged signatures, giving himself a bachelor's and master's degree, which is just very wild. So apparently he really did an Ocean's Eleven, snuck into East Texas State College, grabbed all the forms he needed, copied them, added his name, forged signatures, and snuck them back into the files. He even stole the registrar's typewriter so that the records would all look the same. So he just put all these documents like into this filing cabinet, basically. Sorry, I'm ripping my microphone around. It's going to be awful. But so, I mean, he basically Ocean's Eleven did, forged his going to college. And then according to his college records, he had a master's degree in biology and was working on another master's in counseling and guidance. And he apparently, according to his records, was entering into the PhD program in biology. So <laughs> if you're going to go big, go big, I guess, you know. So Charlie was 36 when he began teaching high school in Crandall, uh, Texas, east of Dallas. He had married Betty, his college sweetheart, and they had a daughter. And life was going swimmingly for Charles until the principal realized that he was not a real, you know, he was a fake. He didn't actually have any of the qualifications. So apparently, an ETSU, so East Texas, wow, East Texas State University's um, administrator was going through all the records. And he was like, I don't ever remember meeting a Charles Albright who apparently has two masters and is applying to the, our PhD program. I don't know who he is. So the name kept popping up on the list of graduate students, but he's like, I don't know who this person is. And he found out that, yeah, Charles Albright never actually went to their school. And then he told on him and the job and all that. So when Charles was confronted, he admitted to the crime saying that he needed to, quote, bend the rules a little in order to get the teaching job. But that's like a little bit more, that's... <laughs> That's a little bit more than bending the rules, but fine. Uh, the forgery was a victimless crime at the end of the day, and uh, they decided to keep the transcript scandal out of the newspapers. And it was embarrassing, after all, that that the East Texas State University could get bamboozled as well as this small high school that he was teaching at. It just needed to be everything was easier if nobody ever heard about it. So Albright pled guilty to a fraud charge and received a year's probation, and this all happened in 1969. By the start of the 70s, Albright was back in Dallas with his wife and daughter, living not too far away from his parents' home. Betty was an English teacher, and Charlie could not commit to getting a friggin' job for more than three months. He was doing all these jobs that were completely off the wall, and he was not qualified for most of them, and he just kept jumping around. And when I mean off the wall, he was like a carpenter, he worked for a company that built airplanes, he collected old movie posters, he became a bullfighter, and at the very end, he worked at a beauty salon. <laughs> he had no experience at all as a stylist, it, and so, yeah, I just, he started calling himself Mr. Charles, and that's just, the whole thing is very weird. But he was having, like, the time of his life, and what I'm trying to get at, I guess, and this originally I talked about way too long in the first copy of this podcast, I'm happy I don't waste time, but what I'm, what I was trying, the point that I'm trying to get is that he's charismatic as fuck. And I mean, you should have kind of gathered that by now, right? He's talked his way out of a lot of shit. He's super intelligent. He can work all these weird jobs. He can convince people to hire him. I mean, try doing that today. If you had a new job every three months, somebody looking at your resume would be like, yeah, no, 
what you are a flight risk and why are you jumping around so much like why are you why can you not hold a job for more than three months and I don't know if he got fired from those jobs or if he quit them hard to tell and I do not know somewhere along the way though he and his wife separated um so they they were on and off from 1965 until their ultimate divorce in 1975 and so by that time they were separated after this he was caught shoplifting two bottles of perfume in 1980, he stole several hundred dollars of stuff from a handy store, but only served six months for the crime. His mother lied and said she had taken a job. At a, I messed this up last time, too. When he went to jail, his mom lied and said that he had taken a job at a very important nuclear power plant in Florida. There you go. So, and up until right now, you know, you could argue... Wow, I just almost knocked everything off my desk. That would have been horrifying. Up until now, you could argue that none of his crimes were, like, all that bad. Obviously, most people really weren't hurt. It was most, mostly the stealing of goods. And up until now, it's almost like he, he just likes... He's the thrill of the, the shoplift, you know? So nobody's getting hurt. And that that's all fine and dandy. It's He's just a weird dude. He likes, you know... <laughs> he's too smart for his own good, so he's weird. Until... After he got out of prison, six months after his prison release, actually, Charles Albright sexually assaulted the 14-year-old daughter of a friend. He was prosecuted and pled guilty, but he only received probation, which is something that I'm really mad about. But to, to kind of go into the details behind that, he had first met the family in 1979 and began singing for the church choir um, in East Dallas. People adored his voice, and soon after, he was acting as a minister, standing before the altar in a robe, reading Bible passages and helping with communion. The girl's parents wanted to keep the story quiet because they didn't want to stigmatize their daughter, but they also didn't want Charlie to get away from it. He didn't want his image altered either, so on March 25, 1985, he confessed to having sexual intercourse with a girl under the age of 14. He was 51 at the time of the assault. He maintained his innocence and said he only did what he did to avoid a hassle. Now, that I do not believe. But also, if he pled guilty, why was he only given probation? How did he talk his way out of that one? This guy has a criminal record, right? Maybe not for anything violent or sexual, but, well, he did have the assault char- the aggravated assault charge from earlier when he was a kid, but I guess he was a juvenile, so fine. But what I'm what I'm getting at is he should not have only received probation for that. That's just absolutely bananas that that's how that went down. And I think had he actually served jail time and if he actually ever got in trouble for anything that he did wrong, maybe he wouldn't have been able to do what he's going to do, right? Fine. Around the same time as the sexual assault, quote, allegations, although I firmly believe they were real, Dell dies of cancer in 1981. She was disappointed in the way her son had turned out while Albright found her to be a pest, especially when she would bang on his door early on Saturday mornings. So, I mean, they had like a really weird relationship, right? Del was disappointed with him the way he was, and Charlie really just didn't like how overbearing his mother was. So they really didn't have a great relationship at the end. But his final gesture of devotion to his mom was that he went out and bought, assuming, bought a brand new dress for the undertaker to put on her body. And it was the first dress, apparently, that he had ever seen her wear. He wept at her funeral and was racked with grief or maybe guilt over the way he had let her down. 
After Dell passed away, Frank, which was Charlie's adopted dad, and Charlie began to have a relationship for the first time in their lives. The two would get dinner multiple times a week. In 1984, Charles applied to be the leader for the Boy Scouts of America and was, thankfully, rejected. In 1985, Charles started dating a woman named Dixie Austin in what he would describe as, quote, the most romantic time of his life. In 1986, Fred died from a heart attack, leaving Charles with $96,000, his parents' homes, and property in South Dallas. And it appears that they owned several tiny little homes that they used as rental properties. He, Charlie, moved into his parents' house, and he kept all the other houses, but he kept them all in his parents' name, in uh, Frank's name, for what he would say was sentimental reasons. I don't know if that was actually the case of why they did it. Dixie, his girlfriend, moved from her home in Arkansas to his parents' old home. But by this time, and Dixie doesn't know this, Charles Albright already has this whole secret life, and nobody really even knows this about him, but he is constantly within the red light districts all over Dallas. He delivers newspapers in the morning as a job to earn a little cash, but then he also visits sex workers in this amount of time. Which, once again, nothing wrong with if that's what you want to do, you know? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But he's keeping it a secret from his significant other, and that's where I have a problem with that. Because that's... I mean, just because one person in the relationship says it's an open relationship does not mean that it's an open relationship. So, and he's also doing this without arousing Dixie's suspicion. So he rented out some of the tiny little homes, and this will be a little bit important later. So uh, Charlie has this tenant who is a truck driver named Axton Schindler. He goes by Speedy because he talks so fast, and he was just a really weird dude. He stacked the homes or the rooms of his house with trash up to three feet high. He put an automobile engine in the living room. He lived without electricity and running water. So he's just... He's just a weird guy, but he's always super nice to Charlie, and, you know, Charlie's like, this guy's fine, he pays his rent, he can stay. And the only thing that Charles didn't know was that (laughs) Speedy had put Charles' address on his driver's license. That'll be important later. On October 1st of 1990, Charlie does something that, even for him is a little weird, and he took a job delivering newspapers in the middle of the night for the Dallas Times-Herald. He had this whole sob story with Dixie that, you know, he was going to make sure that they they needed extra money, and yeah, I don't know. He never had a full-time job, so I guess at the end of the day, they needed the money, and Dixie was a little bit upset about it, but, you know, she got over it because having a job and having money is necessary to survival for the most part, so... She agreed, and that was fine. On December 1st, or December 13th, sorry, 1990, a well-known sex worker named Mary Lou Pratt, who was 33, was found dead wearing only a t-shirt and bra. She worked in the Oak Cliff neighborhood of Dallas, Texas. She was shot in the back of the head with a point, or with a 44 caliber handgun and was badly beaten. The medical examiner on this case said that the serial killer had removed both of her eyes with surgical precision and had taken them with him. Mary herself was um, not, uh, the article said a larger woman, but I that I don't consider her to be that, but she was 156 pounds. I don't know her height. Um, her eyes were shut 
and apparently from a distance you couldn't even tell that her her eyes were removed. A resident of the neighborhood was so horrified by what he saw that he rushed inside and brought out a flowered bedsheet to cover her body. Now, Mary was not somebody who stood at the corner to pick up her johns, as they call them. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But she she had regulars, is I guess what, I, what I've gathered from the article, that she, she wasn't just one of those people who stood out. She, she had regulars that always came to her and she used her money um, for drugs. Mary's parents, an older retired couple, never knew about her life. Well, her, her secret life. So she kept this all a secret. So she, she very much kept this compartmentalized for herself. Pratt's killing was a dumped body case, which is obviously one of the hardest types of murders to solve. She had been killed in one location and dumped somewhere else. There were no witnesses to either the killing or the dumping, no murder weapon, little forensic evidence, no fingerprints, and no apparent motive for why they would want to hurt her. Considering the kind of felonious characters who swing by the Star Motel, which is where her body was found, Mary Pratt could have been shot by just about anybody. And the, the weird thing is, though, is that there were no eyeballs, no tissue, nothing. Mary Pratt's eyes had been cut out and removed so carefully that her upper and lower eyelids were left undisturbed. This was not an operation taught in medical school. The killer had to know how to slip a knife around the eyes to make sure they didn't puncture, A, the eye, or, you know, ruin any of the adjoining skin, and then cut all the major muscles holding each eye into the socket, as well as the optical nerve. And like I said before, with the eyelids shut, it was impossible to tell the eyes were even missing. So whoever did this had to have had a lot of experience on someone or something else. On February 10th, 1991, another sex worker named Susan Beth Peterson, who was 27, was found on the same street that Mary Lou Pratt was found. She was almost nude and had been shot three times, once in the top of the head, in her left breast, in the back of her head. Her eyes had also been removed and taken. She was a fearless individual, and she would threaten other sex workers who tried to get too close to her corner. Whoever killed her was able to pick her up and vanish within seconds. And he also must have been one of her regular customers, because otherwise she would have never let her guard down to get in a stranger's vehicle. Obviously, she was going to fight them. Certainly, she she wouldn't have... Sorry. She wouldn't have allowed someone to shoot her, three times, and she would have pulled out a razor and fought back, so this had to have been somebody she knew. As flyers were posted around the area asking for sex workers to stay off the streets, detectives met with the media to discuss the two killings. Although no information was officially divulged about the missing eyes, word quickly leaked to reporters that the women's faces had been strangely mutilated. Exactly one month later, Shirley Williams was found dead. A waitress had found the body propped up against the curb. Shirley's eyes were also missing. She had bruises on her face and a broken nose and had been shot in the face and through the top of her head. She was found on a residential street half a block from an elementary school, and as children walked to school, they could see her from where they were walking. Just as heartbreaking. She had been seen the night before emerging from the Avalon Motel, where she worked as a maid during the day and as a sex worker during the night. According to another sex worker who saw her, Shirley was wearing jeans and a yellow raincoat and appeared to be high on drugs as she walked alone. An autopsy on Shirley's body showed that the surgery, i.e. the eye removal, had been hurried. The broken tip of an X-Acto knife was found embedded in the skin near her right eye, but there were still no witnesses, no murder weapons, and no fingerprints. 
So solving this crime, well, these crimes, actually goes back before they even started. A pair of patrol officers encountered Veronica Rodriguez, who was a sex, wor- who, sex worker who claimed she had been attacked. Rodriguez said she was rescued by a truck driver named Axton Schindler, a.k.a. Speedy, who gave her a ride and knew nothing about her injuries. Either way, when police questioned Schindler and checked his driver's license, his address was 1035 El Dorado Street. Months later, after three sex workers are found murdered and DI'd, the cops remembered the Rodriguez incident and wondered if her attacker was the eyeball killer. They decided to re-question Schindler to find out if he had seen something or, being a noted weirdo, had done it himself. The cops discovered that 1035 El Dorado wasn't Schindler's address. He'd intentionally put a fake address on his license out of paranoia. Instead, the property belonged to someone named Fred Albright. Plus, Fred was dead, so that was that. But then, a nearby deputy overheard and said he thought the name Albright sounded familiar. He drudged up a memory of a phone call from a few weeks ago with an anonymous woman who said she was friends with one of the eyeball killer victims. She claimed that the victim once dated a man named Charles Albright, who had a weird obsession with eyes and kept exacto knives in his attic, as one does. It turned out that Charles was Fred Albright's son and had inherited 1035 El Dorado. Rodriguez identified Albright as the man who attacked her, and on March 23rd, a little bit later in that year, he was arrested and charged with three counts of murder. As evidence goes, hairs are not as conclusive as fingerprints. It's impossible to tell how many other gray-haired men's hair might look similar to Albright's hairs under a microscope. And lab technicians kept running tests on hairs found in the blankets in the back of Albright's pickup truck to see if they were similar from the two sex workers that were first killed, i.e. Mary Pratt and Susan Peterson. Hairs found in Albright's vacuum cleaner matched the hair from the third sex worker killed, Shirley Williams. There was also a great deal of circumstantial evidence that came out once Albright was arrested. His sexual endeavors came out, and while it had been relatively hush-hush in his neighborhood, good old Charlie was pretty well-known amongst the sex workers. He was a regular trick, and to some um, other sex workers, like Susan Peterson, he was a sugar daddy. He had bonded her out of jail more than once. Uh, She listed Charles Albright as the co-signer on her bond applications, and on one form, she listed him as her best friend in the event that she skipped town and the bondsman had to hunt her down. There's also evidence that Albright was a friend of Mary Pratt's before she became a sex worker, and apparently she lived in the same neighborhood where Albright's parents had invested in the cheap rental property. Um, I'm assuming nearby where Axton Schindler actually lived, i.e. Speedy, we'll go back to him. At the time, Albright was temporarily living in one of those rental homes, and according to several sources, Albright had a fling with Mary Pratt's female friends and brought the woman to Pratt or, and brought that woman and Pratt over to his house for parties. So, yeah, there's just a lot of evidence here not looking good for Charles Albright at this one. Every Friday afternoon, for instance, he had sex with a married woman who hit the streets after her husband had gone to work and her children were at school. Um, She said, she called him Pappy, weird name, um, he felt sorry for her, and she said in her own terms that he was a sweet gentleman. If I ever needed extra money, I would call him and he would drop it off. Um, but in 1987, she put an end to her dating Albright because it got kind of weird. 
and aggressive in her terms. But she said she he asked her to beat him to, quote, spank him like a child. Another sex worker remembered meeting Albright when her friend Susan Peterson asked her to do a, quote, double. She said she and Peterson went with Albright to a motel room where he handcuffed them to the bed and began hitting them with a belt and extension cord, all while shouting expletives in their direction. So those stories go on for a while, and we don't need to hash all them out here. And also, there's a quite interesting article I read about how Charles was really wrestling with the Madonna horror complex, and it it kind of really goes into the psychology of why he was the way he was. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter for this um, podcast. So if that's something you'd like to research, I don't need this to be like a two-hour-long podcast, because if I covered all that, it would be. So long story short, there was a, another sex worker named Tina Connolly who claimed that Albright was one of her regular afternoon customers on Fort Worth Boulevard. She said that she had never saw him cruise after dark except for one time, the night that Shirley Williams disappeared. She took um, detectives to a secluded field near Fort Worth Boulevard where Albright used to take her for sex. They were spot... Um, sorry... <clears throat> there, they spotted a yellow raincoat, just like the one Williams was last seen wearing, and a blanket. Hairs on the coat and blanket matched Albright's hair. So, Albright's defense attorney tried to say it was super flimsy um, circumstantial evidence. He said that the killer was probably Axton Schindler, a.k.a. Speedy, who just happened to skip town the week of the trial. Um, and admittedly, the police had a lot of unanswered questions about Schindler, and they spent a lot of time interrogating him, trying to determine if he was part of the killings or knew about the killings or, you know, I mean, anything about this. But there was nothing to tie him to the case except for an empty 44 caliber bullet box found behind the house, which honestly Albright could have dropped there himself. So when Schindler and Albright's photos were shown to dozens of sex workers, none of them recognized Schindler, but a lot of them recognized Albright. And obviously there were no hairs or any DNA or any evidence at all really found on the scene that could relate them to um, Speedy. Also, no one, <laughs> I guess Speedy, Axon Schindler obviously wasn't a normal guy and he he's, his, he's questionable in many senses, right? But the the people on the trial all kind of understood that Axon Schindler did not have the slightest skill required to perfectly remove a set of human eyes. Had had Charlie, our guy Charlie, not been so fixated on that, yeah, honestly, this probably could have this probably could have gotten pinned on the wrong person. But thank goodness that Charlie had, I mean, obviously he shouldn't be killing people, but thank goodness that he had this really weird calling card that he was really, really good at because it really just kind of stuck out that it was him. So at least, you know, he, nobody had to pay for the crimes that he committed except for himself. The trial began on December 13th, 1991. Uh, evidence was circumstantial. Harris found at the Williams murder site matched Albright. On December 19th, when the jury returned with a guilty verdict and a life sentence, Dixie, who is shockingly still with Charlie at this point, she collapsed in the courtroom. Albright's friends avoided the reporters in the courthouse hallway. They didn't want to... <laughs> understandable, they did not want to be blamed for having lived with a vicious killer without recognizing him for what he was. Uh, so, I mean, yep, honestly, totally get it. I do not know that man. 
Uh, he was only convicted for the murder of Shirley Williams, although it seems kind of weird that if you... The eyeball thing would definitely, I think, be enough that if you could surely convict, surely convict him of killing Shirley, I hate that, but you would think, whatever. Uh, he is still currently living... Um, in Lubbock, Texas, he's serving a life sentence. And let me actually double check to make sure he's still alive. Well, that was disappointing. Um, I just found out that Charles Frederick Albright, well, Googling Charlie Albright brings you to a famous piano player. So sorry, Charlie Albright. This wasn't about you, obviously. So Charles Frederick Albright, uh, he actually died in prison at the age of 87 years old in 2020. Um, but up until his uh, death, apparently he maintained that he was innocent and that Speedy was the one who should be incarcerated for being the true criminal. Uh, yeah, that, dear pals, is the story of Charles Frederick Albright, the Dallas Ripper, the Dallas Slasher, and the Eyeball Killer. With that being said, it is so far past bedtime, and I appreciate you guys putting up with me and uh that's really all I have for tonight <laughs> hopefully next week goes a little smoother um and I don't have to record this four separate times but I guess we'll see what happens all right adios muchachos